Welcome to Peak True Crime, a podcast telling of dark tales and dastardly deeds in Derbyshire and the Peak District. Ilkeston, 1964, Part 1. The March of 1962 was Ilkeston's coldest in almost a century. The wintry ice of January and February had lingered longer than usual, and despite the odd day when the sun had almost managed to make its presence felt, the novelty of the frost underfoot had lost its lustre. March the 13th was no different. The cold, or code as it's pronounced in Derbyshire, wasn't an issue however for 37-year-old Sonia Wilson. The interview room at Ilkeston Police Station was stiflingly hot. The tall, gothic stone windows were painted shut. The hot water pipes which ran along the foot of the walls radiated a relentless, ruthless heat. She'd spent hours that day sat opposite Detective Kentsper and his colleague, Detective Flint. There were pauses for tea and toilet breaks. Moments when she became so overwhelmed that to step outside into the corridor was as much a relief for Kentsper as it was for her. Sonia had a story, one which spanned almost two decades and one which, with each passing year, escalated in its intensity and horror. The relief Sonia felt at ending years of silence were obvious. Defying the tears, she spelt out a series of events which jarred incongruently with the 37-year-old professional woman Kent's had sat before him. An experienced detective with over a decade on the force, Kentsper wasn't a man to be shocked easily. In all his years on the force, however, right through to his retirement, after 30 years of decorated service, the case of Sonia Wilson would be one with which he'd be most associated. A case of singular tragedy and accursedness. Thirty East Street in Ilkeston is a substantial double-fronted red-brick Victorian semi. The large square quarter-painted windows on either side of the glossily painted wooden front door gives the property a neat and regular symmetry. There's a neat petite front garden and to the rear a longer, more established half-lawn, half-paved space. In the far corner of the garden, joining number 29, there's a squat, worn red brick outhouse. Probably big enough to stable a couple of not particularly tall horses, this outhouse acted as a storeroom come office for the family construction firm. It's in this house that Sonia spent most of her life. She'd never known her father. He'd left not long after she was born, but despite this, she lived a comfortable and happy existence. In 1931, while a baby, her and her mother Clara moved into the home of her maternal aunt, Aunt Catherine, and her husband. With no children of their own, they welcomed the pair into their house, treating the young Sonia as though she were their daughter. As a successful building contractor, 
Sonia's uncle was able to afford her privileges in life that had been beyond expectations otherwise. At 13, she was sent to boarding school, St Alphans in Matlock, a sign of how much the family valued education. A school founded to provide an education for the children of Church of England vicars, the open country and rolling hills of Matlock were a world away from the narrow streets of busy Ilkeston, with its trams and traffic, and at the school, Sonia thrived. It was a decision that not only reflected the family's ability to afford it, but also the progressive attitude they had towards the role of women in society. Education for young girls at the time focused on skills which were deemed appropriate for their anticipated future, focusing almost exclusively on homemaking and child-rearing, music and art. Added to that, in the mid-40s, the school leaving age was just 14. After three years in Matlock, Sonia's social mobility continued on the up. Sent to one of the most exclusive all-girls boarding schools in the country, Malvern School, it was the children of bishops, not mere priests, that she was sharing a dorm with now. The formality of the institution, married to a teenage inclination towards independence, however, meant that after an attempted escape out of hours to a nearby village, alongside an equally adventurous pal, it was decided that it was probably in the best interests of everyone involved that Sonia exchanged the hallowed halls of Malvern for the more vocational Ilkeston Business College. Sonia was undoubtedly a clever and gifted girl, but one more suited to doing rather than studying though. Her mother, aunt and uncle hadn't lost any of their ambitions for her, seeing Sonia as more than just a homemaker her studies to date had tutored her to. She was to be groomed to take over and grow the family firm. After acquiring good shorthand, typing and accountancy skills at college, she took a job as an administrator at the local ironworks in order to gain some practical experience outside of the family business. During those 18 months at Stanton Ironworks, as a young girl of intelligence, imagination and empathy, Sonia plotted an entirely different career for herself. She wanted to be a teacher, and in the way that a loving and supportive family do, her family recognised that only through the pursuit of her dream could the young woman that they all cherished find happiness. So, by the late 40s then, Sonia was enrolled at Drake Hall in Staffordshire, at the time a teacher training college. For 18 blissful months, she enjoyed the freedom and excitement of a life away from home, as well as the stimulation of learning and living her own personal dream. Sonia thrived. She found a confidence that her mother and aunt had noticed was a little lacking since she started at the ironworks. 50 miles west of Ilkeston, Drake Hall allowed Sonia not only to advance her career, but also spend time with young people her own age. As an only one in the house of adults, it was an opportunity she grabbed with both hands. Going to Drake Hall, though, wasn't simply about what was being offered to her. It was also a chance to free herself from a situation back in Ilkeston that she was desperate to escape. Stanton Ironworks, where Sonia had worked after completing her administration courses, was the largest employer in Ilkeston. Hundreds of workers marched in and out of the gates every day. 
their lives marked and managed by the shift whistle that signalled the start and finish of a hard day's graft. Working in the offices, Sonia was offered little opportunity to mix with the men on the shop floor. Instead, her friends were her fellow clerks and typists. What male colleagues she did cross paths with tended to be men, and they were all men, who held senior positions within the foundry. One such individual was Ellis Bednall. Twenty years Sonia's senior, the foundry safety officer was not an unattractive man. Don't be mistaken to think this meant that he was an Adonis though. Five foot eight with a long pale face and prominent ears, his hair was losing its battle for territory with his forehead. His slightly comic demeanour was something he lent into, often seen brandishing a broad, wide-mouthed grin, a semi-girl almost, that allowed him to expose to humorous effect the gaps in his gums where once teeth had been. He cut a jocular figure as he shuffled around the site, clipboard in hand, admonishing those flouting the scant rules that existed to avoid injuries among the workforce. What he did have, however, was an easy charm, and a worldliness that beguiled the young and impressionable Sonia. Silent, chaste glances across the office quickly graduated to light innuendo-laced exchanges, until one evening, when Sonia was working late and alone, Bednall appeared from nowhere by his side. He'd seen the lights on. Her tall, slender frame silhouetted against the blinds, he explained, and had decided to take advantage of the opportunity as it presented itself. He'd been intrigued by her since he'd first laid eyes on her, he confessed, and before the words could sink in, his hands were on her waist, pulling her close. Caught in a not altogether unwelcome clinch, the pair separated as quickly as they joined, at a noise outside, Bednall leaving in silence as the moment passed. Martin Buses, the company who ran the local bus service through Ilkeston, carried a livery of deep rouge red and cream trimmings. Double and single deckers carries passengers to all points north, south, east and west of the town's main civic hub, the Marketplace. As the vehicles idled, the deep splintering thud of the engines was accompanied by a sweet, sticky scent of spilt diesel and exhaust fumes. The three buildings which dominated the square still stand today. St Mary's Church on the east side, the Town Hall on its west and the beautiful Municipal Library. East Street was a minute's walk from a light in the bus to her own front door. It was sometime during that minute, however, as Sonia was on her journey home from work, that without breaking his stride, a smiling Edith Bednall charmingly, with his trilby tilted archery on the side of his head, instructed the shocked Sonia to meet him later in the evening. By her own admission, Sonia was angry at the idea that she could just be summoned so easily, but for a young, inexperienced teenage girl, the attention of a seemingly sophisticated older man held an attraction as strong as it has done a million times before and a million times since. As arranged, or coerced depending on your opinion, the pair met later that evening. 
It was the first of many times over the next few weeks that this had happened, and each time the pattern would be the same. They'd sneak to a patch of wasteland overlooking Sonia's house. Sonia would say that this had to stop, that he was married and nothing could come of it. Bednall would tell her that she was beautiful, that he loved her, and that he would leave his wife for her. Falling to the ground, the pair would make love, with Bednall on his feet and belt buckled, before Sonia had realised it was over. As these meetings continued, Sonia gradually became trapped in a seemingly perpetual cycle of fear, love, passion and shame, meaning that she never felt able to let a soul know of her assignations with him. Before long, though, a new dimension was added to the coupling, one which added an additional layer of complication that was as life-changing for Sonia as it was seemingly just inconvenient to Bednall. Sonia found that she was pregnant. If Sonia believed that by carrying Bednall's baby, he would prompt him to abandon his wife and children and set up home with her, it wasn't long before the fantasy evaporated. Broaching the matter at one of their regular meetings on the grounds behind the home, Bednall made it clear that he not only had no intention of leaving his wife, but it was for Sonia to find a solution to the matter, without letting his name become public. As a girl of just 17, rejected and disavowed by the father of her unborn child, and with few real friends of her own age, Sonia felt very much alone. The thought of talking to her family was out of the question. They wouldn't understand. Her priest was someone she only saw at Christmas, so that was out of the question too. Her doctor? She was confident that he'd encountered such situations before, but would he be obliged to inform the family? Sonia didn't know. Sonia did what a million young girls have done before and since. She called on all her reserves of emotional energy and sought to ignore her pregnancy, deny her reality. While pregnancy denial is an exceedingly rare occurrence, it is something that happens more often than you think affecting one in two and a half thousand women. Its incidence rate, similar to that of a woman under 25, developing breast cancer. Numerous studies conducted in the early 2000s delved into the characteristics of women affected by pregnancy denial, yielding some intriguing findings. Initially, the prevailing belief was that those who rejected to acknowledge their pregnancy tended to be young, first-time mothers with learning difficulties inadequate social support and a history of substance abuse or psychotic disorders. However, the results of the studies challenged this notion, revealing a lack of a definitive profile for a pregnancy denier. In developed Western countries, the majority of affected women were in their early 20s to mid-20s, had previous childbirth experience and enjoyed a robust social support system. Many were either students or employed, with only minority exhibiting below average intelligence, or encountered issues such as substance abuse, mood disorders, or psychiatric illness. The studies proposed that external stresses and psychological conflicts surrounding the pregnancy played a more significant role in denial, particularly among otherwise well-adjusted women. Sonia was an intelligent, educated young woman, She came from a loving and caring family who'd supported her without exception. 
She may have been naive when it came to sex and relationships, but she was undoubtedly taken advantage of by what was a much older man. Also, it's necessary to consider that in the late 40s Britain, societal attitudes towards pregnancy out of wedlock, particularly for young girls, carried significant social stigma. The strong cultural emphasis on traditional family values, premarital sex and pregnancy outside marriage had underpinned the sterling certainty of the war years and more often than not were viewed as morally unacceptable. With this as a background to the pregnancy, it's somewhat understandable that she'd try and disassociate from the reality of her situation. Biology worked through a strict clock, however, and one evening, in the January of 1946, Sonia began to feel unwell. The bump that she'd hidden beneath loose-fitting dresses was moving, not to seek escape into the world, but through its distress. After excusing herself from the dinner table to her bedroom under the cover of a headache, Sonia endured a night of excruciating agony and pain. Alone, the contractions and spasms increased in frequency and intensity, Sonia weeping into a pillow to mask the agony from her family. With one final effort, the weak and feeble body of her baby entered the world. With nothing else to hand, Sonia cut through the cord with her fingernails and with babe in arms, a son, she found sleep. Sonia woke the next morning. The pain was still there, her body needing time to recover, but a moment of euphoria overcame her. She'd gone through the night. The baby, her baby, her son. She reached over to her side and touched it. It was cold, ice cold. In the morning's light, its skin wasn't milky pink, but a deep, dark blush. It was silent and still. The following days passed in a haze for Sonia. Both her aunt and her mother knew something was wrong. Normally such a conscientious girl, there was no raising Sonia from her bed the following morning. She was pale and drawn, weak and struggling to maintain consciousness. All symptoms of huge blood loss, it was the discovery of the soiled and stained sheets that alerted them to the seriousness of the moment. The body of her lost infant, she'd wrapped in a nightdress and hidden at the back of her wardrobe. Sonia was determined to keep a secret and said nothing to either woman, instead letting them believe that she'd suffered an internal hemorrhage. This was a deceit, however, that Sonia was unable to maintain with the doctor, Dr Myers. Although she was able to convince him that her conception had only been very recent, his conclusion therefore being that she suffered an early-term miscarriage. Sonia feared that approaching the doctor when she first realised she was pregnant, that he might inform her family was justified. Despite her pleadings, he told her aunt, for some reason telling her mother was a betrayal of confidence that wasn't quite as far a one as he was willing to commit. In a quiet moment, when the doctor had left and they could grab a moment's privacy, 
her aunt approached Sonia with one question, the question that she dreaded being put to her. Who is he? The man? Sonia wouldn't say. She wouldn't tell. Whether from loyalty or shame or a combination of both, it was a secret that she wouldn't share. Had she told her Aunt Catherine that night the name of the father, things might have been different. She might have escaped the terror that was to come. If she had, she might not, almost two decades later, in the stiflingly hot interview room at Ilkinston Police Station, pouring her heart out to Detectives Kentsper and Flint. I'm stood here on um, Warncliffe, Warncliffe Road in Ilkeston. Um, to my left is the marketplace. Um, I've been here for most of the day now and uh, in the library just doing some research in the local studies collection. Um, it's a beautiful art deco-ish building built out of sandstone and it's one of the the Carnegie Libraries. Um, Andrew Carnegie, uh, he was a Scottish-American industrialist and he uh, made his money through steel and the railroads in the late 1800s uh, before becoming a sort of renowned philanthropist and he gave away pretty much all of his fortune billions and billions of dollars worth. and one of the most impactful things he did really was build libraries there's I think it's about 100 or something in the UK um, there's in America and kind of around the Commonwealth um, so if your town's got a library of any age Next time you go or you walk past, just look above the door and you may well see the name Carnegie there. Anyway, in front of me is the old Ilkeston police station. It's a two-storey, um, broad-fronted red brick with large sandstone cornerstones. There's an ornate sculpted arch over what is still a kind of police blue heavy wooden double doors at its entrance at the at the peak of the arch of the doors there's some sort of eagle or, or bird of prey with its wings outstretched it's here that Sonia came and over the two days of interviewed shared her story with the uh, with the detectives it's it's an imposing building which you can tell has been extended and expanded in response to the the changes in growing demands of of modern policing at the rear there's 
a new custody suite which was added I say new I think it was added in the 80s so nearly half a century ago with um, and there's an accessibility ramp and secure parking to the left it's no longer a police station the new station was built I think at some point in the mid 90s and after a while of standing empty the site was converted into a small office units most of which are occupied at the moment inside the offices themselves there's very little trace of the old police station rooms have been partitioned off and plastered the cornicing removed and the ceilings lower so what would have been quite imposing rooms have now lost a little of their their grandeur on the huge blue front door the spy hatches you can still see but they've been painted shut and sealed now and in the wall to the right hand side there's a, a deep hole where once the bell to call for assistance or or entry would have been looking looking into the archives at the library I found it interesting well there was there was a case of a man who was charged and convicted of breaking into the police station he was a coal man and was being investigated for selling coal in underweight sacks and I think to quote to he was selling them to the the unsuspected housewives of Ilkeston bang to right one evening in the pub he considered this predicament and concluded that his only real hope of escaping the prosecution was if the evidence against him were to vanish with this in mind and under the cover of the darkness possibly with a confidence underpinned by alcohol he set out upon his on his quest he arrived at the station so reports say and he realized that there was no way of getting into the locked building because he'd gone empty-handed and in an act of either desperation or inspiration he tried the keys to his own door to his own home on the lock at the police station miraculously it seems his key turned the lock and he got into the station found the evidence relating to his case swiped it and disappeared into the night his freedom secure unfortunately the next morning noting that his evidence alone had been the focus of the break-in the police popped in and visited the Coleman only to discover that despite dumping some of the evidence in a lake and burning some of it a little bit of paperwork had survived and he was arrested for the break-in uh, reports seem to suggest that when interviewed about it 
instead of either pleading innocence or showing contrition he was in fact rather proud of what he'd done telling the officers that he's shocked that he'd done it um, it wasn't normally the sort of thing he'd do he wasn't the sort of person that was so bold uh, let alone get away with it which I suppose ultimately he didn't because he was sharing all this in a police interview There's no mention at all of the fact that he'd spent the evening in the pub and that that might have played some part in him developing what I think uh, American criminals called the kahunas to give it a go. In the end he was found guilty of the coal fiddle and as well as found guilty of breaking into the police station. He got nine months in prison for his part in this coal fraud and a further year for the burglary. Um, that year for breaking into a police station and stealing evidence seems rather light to me, but um, I can't help thinking that it might have got something to do with his his method of entry into the police station. I find it highly unlikely that his house key was an exact replica of one for the police station. I think it's probably more likely that someone forgot to lock the door properly at the end of the day and some sort of accommodation was made to hide a few policeman's blushes. Prior to the stillbirth of her baby, after she told Bednall she was pregnant, Sonia tried to keep a distance from him. When she knew he was in the office, she'd make herself scarce. There'd be some paperwork they needed to take into another part of the ironworks for signatures. An important letter that she needed to personally ensure went into the post that very day. She couldn't avoid Bendel altogether though, and when they met, the charm with which he'd wooed her at that very first time drew her back in. He promised her the earth, assure her, they could work things out. He would whisper into her ear how beautiful she was. In the field behind her home, that hand would rest on her hip, never her bump, and then round to her lower back. They'd kiss, fall to the ground, make love, and he'd be gone, rebuckling his belt as he walked away. With the loss of her baby, though, she needed him. Needed him to help her. Sonia had no idea what to do and surely, given what had occurred, he wouldn't let her deal with all of this alone. While not entirely incorrect in her assumption of Bendel's willingness to come to her aid, his assistance was begrudging and brutal in equal measure. Arranging to visit her at a time when they could be sure that they would be home alone, he dug a hole in a neglected corner of the garden and buried the stillborn infant 
straight into the heavy clay earth. Ordering Sonia not to mention what he'd done to a living soul, he left her battling with the paradoxical feelings of guilt and grief. She mourned the death of her baby, as would be expected from any mother, but at the same time she felt a responsibility for its passing and its subsequent brutal concealment. It was at this point of near-emotional collapse that she latched firmly onto the idea of Drake Hall and a career in teaching as an escape, a way to get out of Ilkeston, to turn a page and above all else get away from Bednall. Although it took a couple of years to achieve, the plan worked. Though still cajoled and coerced to meet Bednall, she had nothing more to do with him, having left the ironworks to volunteer at her old primary school. It was a huge relief to Sonia's mother that her daughter was going away to study to be a teacher. With the decision, she saw a notable improvement in her, both physically and mentally. Some of the old spark was back, and while she suspected her daughter might still sometimes sneak out at strange hours of the night, it was a lot less frequently than it used to be. A content child with a plan for the future. What more could a parent ask for? This sign of love from a mother towards a daughter, wanting nothing more than her happiness and her good health, was entirely reciprocated by Sonia. Since her father had left when she was just a baby, and despite the hospitality and kindness shown to them by Sonia's aunt and uncle, the bond between them was forged through a mutual, unspoken understanding that they'd always be there for one another. It's because of this that Sonia returned to Ilkeston when she'd completed her studies. It had been her desire to move to one of the big cities of Manchester or Sheffield when she'd qualified, but instead, worried that her mother would miss her too much, Sonia moved back into the family home and took a job at her old school, Granby School. Sonia had little or nothing to do with Bedden while at college. He sent her the odd, rather romantic letter, but his feelings weren't reciprocated. Sonia wanted to put the whole sorry chapter behind her, and besides, in the years since they'd first met at the ironworks, his own brood has doubled in size. He had a wife and now four children, all of whom he provided with a warm, secure family home. Sonia wanted no part in disturbing that. And besides, the way he dealt with the pregnancy had told her all she needed to know about what sort of man he really was. He was a man who would see their baby disposed of rather than interned after its stillbirth. The infant, treated with less care than be afforded a family pet. In the press over the last couple of weeks, a number of stories have appeared of newborn babies being abandoned. Without going into details of specific cases, the characteristics of each instance are often very similar. A baby just days old is found in a public place, often a toilet or a changing room. On most occasions, they're wrapped in a blanket or clothing that will protect them from the immediate cold, and on occasions, they might be accompanied by a personal item, such as a toy or a comforter. When discovered, an appeal is made through the media for the mother to come forward. The desire not being to punish but to provide care. In all likelihood, she'll have gone through the entire pregnancy independently of any meaningful support, 
and in all probability in need of some assistance, be it medical or emotional. What happens beyond this goes largely unnoticed to the public, but often the mother is identified, either by the authorities following an investigation, because of family suspicions, or simply that they come forward themselves. The right to privacy of those involved is what dictates the lack of general reporting of the next chapter of these stories, but regardless, in the UK, these discoveries take place by chance. A member of the public finds a newborn child in an improvised crib or carrier in a place they hadn't expected to do so. That isn't the case everywhere. Baby hatches, also known as baby boxes or baby drops, have a history that spans centuries, evolving to address the challenges faced by mothers in desperate situations. The concept traces its roots back to medieval Europe, where foundling wheels were used as a means for parents to anonymously leave their infants in safe places. Installed in the walls of orphanages or churches, foundling wheels enabled desperate mothers to place their babies in a compartment on a wheel, much like a turntable partition at an old bank counter. They'd rotate it, and the infant would circle around and be safely inside, ensuring anonymity to the parents and a future for the child. The primary goal of the baby hatches that exist today is to prevent infant mortality by offering a secure alternative for parents facing overwhelming challenges. The key feature of these hatches is the guarantee of anonymity for the parents, encouraging them to choose this option over more dangerous alternatives, such as abandoning infants in public spaces or restoring, tragically, to infanticide. While in the UK there are no baby hatches, Section 27 of the Offences Against the Person Act 1861 states that abandoning a child below the age of two years old is a criminal offence, punished by up to five years in prison. In Germany, there are. Established in the early years following the reunification, a network of baby hatches was created in response to concerns about infant mortality and unsafe abandonment. The hatches were often installed in hospitals and were equipped with the necessary medical facilities to ensure the well-being of the abandoned infant. As of today, there are over a hundred across Germany, and while a debate about the ethical and legal standing of the baby hatches continues, their presence is a mitigation against unsafe baby abandonment. As of today, there are over a hundred across Germany, and while the debate about the ethical and legal standing of baby hatches continues there, their presence as a mitigation against unsafe baby abandonment seems almost guaranteed. The history of baby hatches almost certainly wasn't what either detective were thinking as they sat down in an interview with Sonia in 1962. The issue of a mother who'd given birth to a baby in secret wasn't something unheard of either though. A decade or so earlier, in the years following the end of World War II, the issue was relatively common. Soldiers returning home from the front were soon accompanied by a notable rise in the birth rate. But why had Sonia come forward now? And why was this really a matter for the police? There was obviously the issue that she was implicated in the unlawful disposal of her body. Did she fear that for one reason or another, 
the body of her lost child was about to be discovered and she wished to get ahead of things. Settling down in the stuffy interview room after a short break, all of the questions would be answered and a whole slate of new ones posed. Despite her education and thirst for independence, the Sonia who had returned from Drill Hall and was embarking on a teaching career had led a relatively sheltered life. Her family's wealth had insulated from many material concerns and while not religious, the strong morality which ran through her family had installed her with a certain naivety. A pop psychologist might suggest that her and her mother's abandonment when she was just a baby meant that she grew up without a father figure and the attentions of an older man was something that she subconsciously craved. I don't know about that. Her uncle Henry was the keystone to the family and loved her as though she were his own. Whatever the reason, the reality was Sonia was irresistibly and fatally drawn to Bednall. He had a hold on her that couldn't slip, a control over her that despite herself she couldn't escape. Sonia and Bednall had met in pubs around Ilkeston. There were the odd trips to cinemas too, but at some point, with every meeting that passed, there'd be a sexual advance from Bednall, an advance Sonia was unable to resist or repel. The idiom of a moth being drawn to a flame would be an apt approximation, however, not in the way it's generally understood. The common assumption is that the flame holds some sort of magnetic hold over the moth, drawing it closer and closer to the flickering flame until it's too late. The reality of the tragic relationship between moth and flame, though, is that, like most insects, moths use light sources as a means of navigation. In all likelihood, it's not that the flame has a mesmeric power over the moth which tempts it to its death. Rather, the moth is dizzy and disorientated by the flickering flame. It's in this altered state that, accidentally, a brief burning lick catches the moth's wing and seals its fate. Dizzy and disorientated might best describe Sonia's response to Bednall's advances. He knocked her off guard, stripped of her common sense which she displayed in every other aspect of her life, be it on the back row at the picture house or the secluded corner of a farmer's field. She'd give her ill-considered consent to a man who no more cared for her than he respected her. Oh, and there was the money. Sonia was a popular teacher at school, both with colleagues and pupils. With a talent for music, alongside her own class, she'd lead all school hymn practice from the old upright piano in the hall. The family business was successful and respected, and alongside her teaching, Sonia was granted a certain status. A young woman of position and authority. On occasion, Sonia and Bednall would go out together in public. Out of town, of course, to a pub a safe distance away. Somewhere like Trowell or Coswell March. Far from prying eyes and wagging tongues, just for a couple of drinks. On occasion, Sonia and Bednall would go out together in public. Out of town, of course, to a pub a safe distance away. Somewhere like Trowell or Coswell March. 
far from praying eyes and wagging tongues, just for a drink or two before, well, you know how their evenings ended. It was on one of these outings that Bender complained that he was short of money and wondered if Sonia would be able to lend him a couple of pounds. Reluctant at first, Sonia finally agreed on assurance that he'd repay her the following week. Bednall promised he would. It was only a short-term thing and he'd have it back to her before she even knew it. The following week passed without repayment, as did the next, as did the next. Sonia didn't feel able to broach the subject. She was as embarrassed as she was nervous, and when they spoke, the topic was never touched upon, as though it had never happened. While Sonia's family were comfortably off, and she still lived at home, she insisted on paying more than a share of board and lodgings, and from a meagre teacher's salary of just £350 a year, this left her with little to spare. Sonia saved, of course. She was conscientious, and never wanted to be beholden to anyone financially, so with some relief when, with Bendel's repayment overdue by a month, he raised the subject. He was struggling for money, he admitted, and of course pay her back as soon as he could. In the meantime, however, could Sonia see herself to lend him a little more? As before, she tried gently to say no, she couldn't afford it. He promised to pay her back and here he was, asking for more money. A little more emphatic with his request, Bendel asked this time for £10. Not an insignificant amount of money at the time, the equivalent today of close to £500. Nowadays, the relationship between Sonia and Bednall would be described as coercive. Though not directly violent, she was manipulated emotionally by him. Affection would be offered and withdrawn, kindly shown and then sexually exploited. Beyond the callous way he treated the pregnancy, Bednall's power over Sonia was sly and subtle. Things, though, were about to change. Don't forget what I know. Bednall whispered to her. He knew about the baby. He knew where it was buried. He told her that he'd tell anyone that would listen that she'd confessed after the burst that she'd murdered the child and buried it herself. He knew that one phone call to the police he could bring Sonia's world to an end. And Sonia knew it too. And for the first time he saw Bednall for what he was. A cruel, calculated man who had exploited her for all his worth. The following day, the pair met in the early evening. At lunchtime, Sonia had been to the bank and withdrew £10 from her savings to hand over to him. The shame and guilt had forced her hand. If this would silence him, it was worth it. Her uncle was ill, and neither her mother nor aunt needed any further worry or grief. Since the decline in her uncle's health, the three women of the house had discussed Sonia leaving teaching to run the family business. Sonia would miss school and the children and no firm decision had been made. But her family were more important to Sonia than anything else. She'd do whatever was best for them. If giving up teaching was the price of doing the right thing, she'd reluctantly but willingly pay it. Not unlike the £10 she took with her that evening, she'd reluctantly but willingly pay it. A clean slate, she thought. The hope she carried with her after they parted that evening 
was all of this could be put behind her, and with tentative optimism, she held that close. And for a while, all was fine. Bednell stayed away. Sonia handed in a notice at school, and despite her reservations, began to enjoy the responsibility of managing the family business. Her youth and femininity wasn't an issue with the exclusively male workforce. They respected and admired how she'd stepped up to keep the business going, and no doubt, some of the skills she'd picked up as a teacher were usefully deployed when dealing with them too. More importantly for Sonia though, her mother and her aunt were appreciative of what she'd given up, and Sonia herself was keen to repay their faith in her, proud to be the third generation at the helm of the firm. That was until the start of 1951. It was through the early evening gloom that one evening, as her mother and aunt left the house to attend a church meeting, a stout middle-aged man who had been watching her from the now long-gone Gladstone pub across the road approached Sonia's front door. He knocked, and as her uncle was convalescing in bed, Sonia opened the door. The bednall on her doorstep was older than Sonia remembered. Even less hair, no fewer teeth mind, which came as a surprise, but no less intimidating. Invited himself inside, he walked through the hallway and into the reception room to his left, helping himself to a seat before inviting a terrified Sonia to do the same. He asked how she'd been, how the family was. For a brief moment, Sonia thought that he was about to return the money he'd borrowed. So banal and superficially engaged was his conversation. A simple preamble in all likelihood to the main reason for his visit. Money was, he explained, what had brought him to the house. He was going to begin on holiday with his family and the following week he needed £20. £20 he required Sonia to provide for him. In the time it had taken for her to open the front door to now, a matter of minutes, all of the fears and anxieties that Sonia thought were behind her returned to her in a gut punch. Don't forget, he reminded her. Don't forget what I know. Of all the beautiful and idyllic places I've visited for the podcast, none can really compare to where I am now. Um, Just a few minutes walk from the old police station in Elkiston, diagonally across the marketplace and down a little, I'm in the car park of B&M. To the uninitiated, B&M is a near ubiquitous discount retailer which no self-respecting town in Britain would be seen without. It's on East Street where Sonia and her family lived and is the original site of the Gladstone pub. The pub where Bender was drinking the night he was watching and waiting for Sonia's mother and her aunt to leave. 
before approaching the family home and up in the ante on his blackmail of Sonia. On the opposite side of the road, just down to the left, is 30 East Street, Sonia's home. It's the last house on the road, it's a substantial building, it's only 15 or 20 metres from here. It's double fronted and one of the most prominent houses on the street. This is a fascinating and terrible story and one which the more I've looked into it the more I've found. With that in mind we're going to leave it here for today and pick up next week with the second half of the story. So please subscribe so you don't miss the second half follow on any of the social media you might be involved with um, just search peak true crime and if you like drop me a line and say hello there's plenty more to come with this case including further terrible revelations as well as a court judgment which sets a new and startling legal precedent Anyway, thanks for listening and until next week, bye for now.